Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Sunday, November 7th episode of Poets and Muses, where we chat with poets about their inspirations. I'm your host, Imogen Arate. You can find us at poetsandmuses.com, as well as on Instagram and Twitter under Poets and Muses. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter at poetsandmuses.com. Now, in addition to the Poets and Muses website and SoundCloud page, you can also listen to the Poets and Muses podcast on your preferred podcast platforms. Since December of 2018, we have brought to you over 130 poets in 16 countries on five continents, and we hope to continue to do that with your support. And you can support us by going to poetsandmuses.com forward slash donate and donate either via PayPal or your preferred credit cards. With us today is Pete Newland, with whom I will be discussing his poem, As Light Into Water, and my poem, How to Capture Steam. And now let us welcome our poet guest of the week, Pete Newland. Hi, Pete. Thank you very much for coming on to Poets and Muses. Uh, kia ora. Kia ora. Thank you. You brought with you today uh, your poem, As Light Into Water. Before we get into that, I would love for you to tell us a little bit about yourself. I live in New Zealand. I live in a small house out in the, out in the countryside, mm-hmm. surrounded by green pastures and forests. Mm. Today, I was actually born uh, in Australia many years ago, and I only lived there a couple of months, and then my mother brought me back to New Zealand, mm-hmm. uh, back to Taranaki, which is on the west coast of the North Island. Mm-hmm. My father was studying vet science at the time in Australia, and when he finished, they all, we all got back together and um, spent the rest of my life in New Zealand. Okay. Um, I was brought up in Hamilton, which is a city to the south of here, mm-hmm. and had all my schooling there and I went to university but I've lived up in Northland where I live now for quite a few years and um, it's just a beautiful part of New Zealand. Mm. Um, feels a bit like an island. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of my life I have spent living on a yacht because the coastline around here is, is great. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I kind of on a yacht. I had a full-time job as well. I worked um, for the Department of Conservation. Mm-hmm. That's been my main um, career. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've spent quite a bit of time just exploring the coastline, particularly the eastern coast of Northland mm. and the Haurangi Gulf. Yeah. Great. As far as poetry is concerned, I've been writing poetry for a very, very long, for a very long time, and um, I just next to the my, my children and my relationships, it's a very, it's the most important thing in my life. Mm. Yeah. Before we get into the poetry things, I can imagine people must ask you this all the time, how in the world did you get to spend some part of your life on a yacht? I had a house uh, that I sold, and they had in the, in the town base of where I lived, there were all these yachts there. I've, I've always wanted to, I've always had a yacht um, for much of my childhood and much of my life. And um, mm. but that's a um, centerboard yachts, you know, sailing, just day sailing around and about. But this time um, I was in the position where I could afford to buy a yacht a very expensive one, and um, <laughs> and I, I just kind of lived on it in the marina and um, worked during the week, and then as soon as Friday afternoon came along, I would take off mm. um, down the harbour, and yeah, it was great fun, great fun. It was something I kind of wanted to do for a long time, and finally everything kind of fell into place, so that's what I did. Wonderful. How long did you do that for? That was about 10 years. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. Okay. And it was just great fun. I was able to take my children sailing, take friends sailing, mm-hmm. uh, just around the Hauraki Gulf. In the summertime in particular, it was a 
it's a beautiful place to be. That sounds really amazing. Just out of my own curiosity, did you have to readjust to living on land? I mean, like, does it feel somehow wrong that things under your feet are not moving? That's right. Well, that, you can walk along and you find yourself slowly you know, compensating for the anticipating the feel of the waves all the time. Where I live now, I'm still in the weather, I'm still in the wind, I'm very much aware of clouds passing by. I can see any weather that's coming our coming our way, and yeah, so and I have plenty of space, so it's I really enjoy the distant views. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're up on the top of a hill, and then we can see forest covered covered hills in the distance, mm. uh, all around. Yeah, um, so it's it's about, it's about having the space to see things. So on a yacht, you have a similar kind of sensation, even though you're confined in the, the small craft, you have the, the opportunity to travel quite easily and freely all over the place. I've replaced that by sitting in my chair and looking over the, the distant landscape and, and the sky. Mm. Yeah, I wish, uh, I'm sure a lot of people wish they could have uh, that right now, especially if they're forced to live in a, like a small house or an apartment, you know, to have a bit of nature because there's something so wonderfully calming, maybe not in a storm, but, you know, uh, in general. Going back to your poetry, how did you start writing poetry? The first poem that I ever wrote that I remember was about architecture. Huh. Probably because uh, we were, my parents were having a, a new house built and mm. looking at the plans and just seeing the, uh, the house sort of emerge out of the planning that, that was involved. Mm. Um, that kind of got me. That's the first poem that I, I remember writing. We always had a, a big volume of it was just simply called poetry. It was a very had three four hundred pages of popular poems um, mm. that we were able to, to read, and yeah, that was just playing around as a, at a young age. But it wasn't until I left I left university and finished university that I really got into it with uh, any real serious uh, team. Mm. And yeah, I just started writing and where I was living, I was a very, just a very small town and you had to do something and um, writing was a good way just to interpret the world or express my uh, interpretation of the, of the world and things that were going on at the time. Mm. But it's also a lot of reading. Um, right. I think reading, reading is, is as important as, as the writing, getting a sense of the reading a lot of anthologies of New Zealand poetry in particular, mm-hmm. starting off with that. We did do poetry at school, some of the first and second world war poets. Mm. That's really just sort of introduced me to the idea of poetry have a real any sense of kind of purpose about it but no, that, that came much later mm. um, when I without being taught um, just following my own instincts and intuition about what I enjoyed reading mm-hmm. and you know, that sort of developed models for writing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. one of the things which really does inspire me about poetry is that it's poetry which has been translated mm-hmm. from other languages. Right. Uh, so as a participant in kind of like a Western democracy, mm-hmm. uh, speaking English, we, you know, it's kind of the dominant culture of the planet at the moment. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of other people around, there's a lot of other cultures and ideas and perceptions, mm-hmm. ways of saying things. Right. And those, that's what really um, interests me. Mm. Uh, it has 
it's done so for quite a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, I really take my hat off this, the translators of poetry mm-hmm. because of the, the role that they play and also to all of those poets who speak all of the other languages of the world that, isn't, that aren't English. Um, right. I mean, I, I particularly enjoy poetry from South America. Mm. Um, Britain and Spanish and Portuguese as a starting point. And, you know, there's well, some of the Asian and Middle Eastern, uh, all, all, all of the poetry of Europe. Uh, it's just amazing. Yeah. Mm. yeah. It's hard to know where to start, actually. Yeah, it is kind of difficult because uh, poetry is kind of a universal thing. Wherever you go, there are people who have written poetry or, or spoken poetry. Even if they don't have a system of writing, there's still a sense of, you know, uh, lyrical poetry, uh, as it were. Back to your own history, and uh, just uh, briefly, I was wondering what, um, if you mind letting us know what age that particular poem about architecture, when you wrote that? So 10, about 10, I think. So I was at school, at primary school, so it must have been, I was probably about 10 or something like that. You were 10? Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Since you mentioned that you worked as a conservationist and also when you talked about living on a yacht and even your living situation now, you mentioned a lot about the natural surroundings that you're living around. I think that's a very apparent in the body of poetry that you sent me, uh, and similar to the poem that we're going to discuss as well. So I wonder uh, if you don't mind reading that poem for us now, and then we can talk about it. As light into water, the unrecognized potential of every hour is parabolic moon flight over tussolin azure, the seared sienna edges. Sumatran jungles that melt billows into smoke plumes, earth into air into earth. Steroid fueled furies of commodified experience, the fires of perception transcending the anthropocentric, the distance between us and how close we are. Escapes of elastic rock on fault lines faster than sound speed, a dissolving view, dissolving view, dissolving temple silence in terraced pools under cliffs, tail fin flicker, yellow shining splash, Black wing, white wing flurry, speckled, sparkle, and tuckapoo flash. Symbolic neutrinos, a night of pearls, spectral ice, luminescent needles, mirrored water, clouds of memory in forest gardens of your desire, spiced bridal honeydew. White tulips, a dream of silver rice, possibly anything else under Corona Australis. Thank you. I'm really bad with names, first of all, and also I haven't really studied astronomy. So starting from the very end of your poem, I was wondering if you can give us an idea where is Corona Australis? Australis, I'd say in the sky, it's called the Southern Crown, um, that is the, the reflection of the, the northern sky. We're in the I'm in the Southern Hemisphere, you're in the Northern Hemisphere. Right. I'm trying, I guess I'm reasserting the, the Southern view of the world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, right. Which we don't get to see represented very much. In many ways. Yeah, I mean the the other one is the is like is Matariki, which is the the Maori, um, although it's not part of Matariki, it's, it's a 
different orientation of the way time is recorded mm. and what, what are important events in the, in the year, really. Right. There is also another uh, phrase that I don't quite understand. Well, there are a couple more. Going up a little bit from the bottom, you talk about Takapu Clash. Uh, right, okay. There's a few lines there that the tale that kind of go together, the, the dissolving view um, through the temple silence and the terrorist port on the cliffs tale. And like that's just kind of like an image of it's a sheltered bay with fish in it. And then the takapu is a, is a kind of bird mm. um, called a gannet, uh, quite a large bird that dives for fish. And they're quite, it's quite kind of spectacular the way you see them just flying over the bay. And then they'll just turn 90 degrees and dive straight in, uh, sometimes quite great height, wow. and um, come up with a fish. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that must be spectacular too. <laughs> See, uh, so they, they are, and they, they form quite, they occur in quite big, they have big colonies out on some of the islands off the coast here, out also on small um, coastal areas, mm-hmm. and um, in the colonies of hundreds and thousands of these quite large birds. Yeah. So Takapu is the, is the Maori name for Anna. Oh, cool. And then going further up to almost the beginning of the poem, you mention uh, the parabolic moon flight over Tassilin, Agir. That's right. That's a, a national park in Algeria. Ah. Yeah, it's in the southeastern corner of Algeria. It's a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Hmm. And there's lot this prehistoric caves, big rock arches and lots of dune land. One of my fascinations is I love looking at aerial or satellite photography. Mm. It's kind of it's just amazing the the colours and shapes of landforms um, mm. from great height, um, whether it's via satellites or aeroplanes or drones mm. it's just a yeah, different perspective mm. Mm. Yeah. yeah I've never been to the, that national park I'm unlikely to ever go there but I guess the image of that just caught my eye when I and I, and I like the, just like the word yeah. mm. you said you you haven't actually visited site but the site but you've seen I haven't okay, I yeah. have, that's right I haven't I haven't been to it on uh, on land. I've only seen it um, via a, a satellite photo. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So this is really interesting that you know you start basically by going very far from New Zealand and then you end up back in New Zealand. And I was wondering if you could, well, first of all, I guess tell us how this poem came about, and then about the traveling that this uh, poem takes? Yeah, that's a, good, that's a good question. How did this poem come about? It starts off with the unrecognised potential of every hour, so it's really talking about possibilities. Mm. Uh, I have a fascination with the literature of, Al- of Algeria and the Mediterranean, but that's... Um, mm. So the image is important there, where that comes from, and then... Sumatran jungles, again, I've, I have actually been to Sumatra, I've got a lot of time there wandering, wandering around mm-hmm. um, in Indonesia, mm-hmm. and that's a place, uh, as Bob says, it's basically was burning at the time uh, the poem was written a couple of years ago, there were past large fires in Indonesia, mm-hmm. uh, and that's fires of uh, the commodified experience, the consumption of, of, the, of the earth, of the forests uh, to, fill, to fill human 
desires and wants, perceived needs, as you know, what, what is sending us to the crisis that we are at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that those first sort of few lines are really about climate change mm-hmm. um, and about the impact that humans have had on the planet, you know, about the anthropocentric, uh, the distance between us and how far apart we are, but also how close we are. Together, we're all we're all in this crisis together. Really. Mm-hmm. So some of those some of those things are human created. Some of those issues. Mm-hmm. But then we have the escapes of rock on fault lines, which is a reference to earthquakes mm-hmm. in particular. Mm-hmm. So New Zealand was hit by earthquakes, some quite serious earthquakes a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, the Christchurch earthquakes and mm-hmm. several others subsequent to that. In fact, we live in a there's, there's earthquakes happening all, all the time around here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that that's those are the first uh, few lines of that poem. Mm-hmm. Then we kind of move into something which is perhaps a bit this temple silence. You know, it's a more peaceful situation. Mm-hmm. The water, the birds diving through the water, the, uh, the fish swimming, and you know, just the general clarity and sense of cleanliness and wanting to clear everything away. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess that's what, I, what that poem is leading through. And then the forest gardens of your desire, um, possibly anything else. It's like, can we, what can we achieve to purify ourselves, really? Mm. That uh, makes sense to you? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I am enjoying the beauty of the imagery. Um, I kind of like really just playing with the, playing with the words. I can go could go over and over it. Each particular little line and sentence has, has particular references to, to obviously to my experience of what mm-hmm. I'm seeing. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. You explain some of these, so you anticipated some of my questions. One one of them is uh, I was wondering if if you can enlighten us as to what this. A dream of silver rice. What is the silver rice uh, that oh, you're referring right, yeah. to? Really, just white. It's just well. I guess it goes with the forest gardens. So I live in a forest garden, really. Mm. So it's like an orchard, and it's got trees, nut trees, and vegetable garden. Mm. Um, the spiced bridal honeydew, white tulips, and a dream of silver rice is really just a dream of clarity, mm. clean, and um, perhaps it's a perception of just clarity, really. Mm. Yeah, as I said, I just really enjoy the imagery, all the gorgeous imagery that these lines brought to my mind. Whether or not <laughs> we are seeing the same thing, obviously we don't know for sure, but at the same time, it's still just a lot of natural beauty that comes to mind when I read this poem. And yeah, it's, there's no, I really don't try to make people think and lead people down a particular path my poem for this particular poem. What I really do enjoy playing with is the, are these different images, combinations of words, combinations of images that kind of, I guess, ask people to to look slightly differently at things mm. um, or, or inspire them to do that. Mm. Yeah, so in terms of particular meaning, meaning is take out of it whatever you wish to take out of it. Right, right. Uh, and if, if, you, if there is a, a phrase or a, some image that strikes you, then I'm, I'm happy to have, have, have achieved something. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like this poem, it, it just, like for me at least, it just brought 
uh, visual feast to my mind and it was really just beautiful and I really enjoyed reading it. I felt a sense of calm as I read through the sequence of words. When did you write this poem? Was there a particular incident that inspired you to write, start writing this? In some ways, I guess I was coming to terms with not living on my yacht anymore. Oh, okay. um, so now I, I live in this house with my girlfriend, and I spend a lot of time here on my during the day. The rest of the world is all out there, and I try to connect to the rest of the world whatever means I can mm. and even though I'm located in this one particular place uh, there's a lot going on out beyond, beyond me mm -hmm. yeah. and I, I think about it but yeah, that's, so all of those well, what's happening in Algeria or what's happening in Europe mm -hmm. what happens in, closer to home in Asia and in, in Indonesia Mm. Um, what is all of those, you know, the anthropocentric creation of that term, the experience that I had uh, living on, uh, going to a, a quiet bay on the boat and really enjoying that and seeing the fish swimming around the boat, mm. the birds diving, all of those things. Right. I've had a, I live a very, a very lucky life, really, mm. when it comes down to it. It sounds like um, it, it's uh, it's a poem about reminiscence about the things that you've seen um, either directly or indirectly throughout life, especially in the ten, a decade where you spent on the yacht where you were able to travel around. Yes, and well, and, and subsequently, it's because it's um, as I said earlier, I'm really happy to have been able to read all of these books from other languages that have been translated into English for me mm. by translators. And that's what's made living here um, such so much richer than it might otherwise have been. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Okay. I noticed that the format of this poem is a little bit different from the other ones that you sent me in the sense that majority of the lines, shall we say, have this a break, uh, what poets would normally think of as the line break symbol, like a forward slash, uh, followed by a small, uh, you know, a section before, a section after. And I was wondering what made you decide to use this particular format with your poem rather than just use traditional line breaks. Um, yeah, I guess I wanted to try and put it onto a page or, um, <laughs> yeah, simple practicality. Ah. Um, so they could have been a sequence of lines which would have almost increased the length of the poem right. uh, to another, maybe a third longer down the page right. uh, just to compress it a little bit right, right. and it, it also you know, I think nothing more than that really okay. uh, and it does does create another slight, it just join, joins the lines together a bit too. Uh, yeah. A different sort of shape. Yeah. That was my question, follow-up question, is how keeping the lines together as closely as they are rather than breaking them, actual breaking them, besides making the poem physically longer going onto two pages, let's say, does keeping them together pretty much affect the way that you read them, read the poem? It may do, but I wouldn't put a, put a lot on that. Mm. <laughs> uh, I mean, having having re-looked at it again um, as a result of wanting to discuss it, I thought it seemed kind of 
is really three section uh, lines and then there's one line there which sort of about uh, earthquake sort of stands out and then here there's one another two, two five line groups and I might have actually uh, retrospect split, split it up into those three or four groups uh, mm. retrospect and another, another way of looking at it but mm. uh, it is what it is and um, quite a fun poem in a way for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it definitely, yeah. It, there's a lot of movement in there. I was also wondering, since you have a note in there that says that it's the title poem of the new collection, if you can talk a little bit about your new collection. Uh, yeah, it's, I've been involved in doing um, anthologies for quite a while, poets around me, and seven issues of that, but this time I, I kind of figured I, I wanted to create a book of my own, mm. um, and um, it's titled As Light Into Water, mm. uh, it's, it's being printed at the moment uh, by Cyberwit uh, in India, okay. and uh, I guess it'll be released Compilation of poetry mm. of any sort, so it's about 60 poems or so. This is kind of taking it to a, I guess, a different audience in a way. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a bunch of poems, uh, they do talk about light, talk about water, uh, there's a bit of music in there, and I guess they're a little different from what I've done in the, in the past. Earlier poems are all about love and relationships, and mm. this, these are a bit more stable mm. in that respect. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Um, so you say it's coming out, I guess, in the first half of 2021. Then it will. Oh, it will be. Yeah, early, early 2021. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And you had also mentioned. You said that you haven't come out with a collection since a date, but I didn't hear it. Oh, sorry. This well, I've, I started off with a whole lot of collections of poems from the eighties. The mm. They were just photocopied compilations of twenty or thirty poems, just small editions, your mm. hundred copies, mm. and each. Had a cover on it, which was individually kind of coloured, painted, or whatever. Yeah. And then I did another. I had another one a bit later on. That was written while I was living on the boat. On the boat. Mm. I released that about ten years ago, probably. Mm. So this, this new, this new book, it's a new, a new stage. Mm. Over the last decade, so I spent a lot of time submitting poems to various journals around the place mm. and yeah, I guess I felt now is a good time as any to produce a, an, an anthology of some of that work. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. I, I didn't realize, I mean, there, there was that line where it's it talked about can modify experience and then talking about transcending the anthropocentric, which seem a little bit out of place or, or stick they stick out from the rest of the poem because the rest of the poem seem to be much more about uh, nature natural phenomenon so and and that the majority that nature aspect is what I picked up on and and the reason why I send you my poem which is called how to capture steam which also travels a bit but much more confined to a much smaller amount of space actually so i'm going to read that and we can talk about it how to capture steam it curls and pirouettes licking the surrounding cool air like the flames of a fire the more wistful romantic as ghost lovers conjured by the brain's wanderings aspiring away from gravitation's grasp 
into the fuzzy green tops of trees bunched like a leprechaun's felt buttons. Crowned by a gathering of brooding, cresting wave, a concoction of cotton and whipped cream, growing thick but never as menacing as it really is, distance giving room to fantasy. My overlooking uh, fuzzy green tops of trees and there was steam coming out of somewhere out of a building or a, in a city and a sense of steam is that anger and that's how to kind of harness that anger and make it complete was the point. I mean, I, I think that's that's the beauty about poetry, right? It's it's a very sort of low tech interactive experience because you have the writer and their yeah. intentions, and then you have the reader and their intentions, and almost in, like never the twain shall meet kind of scenario where you don't <laughs> you don't get to necessarily talk with the poet and truly understand exactly what the poet means or what they're trying to write about unless you're in a classroom setting or in a uh, like a workshop uh, discussion setting where you're actually digging into the poet's life and trying to understand maybe what a particular poem means so I, I think when this sort of experience comes where we have two poets meeting and each is both the writer and the reader or each other's authors and readers. Um, it, it offers an opportunity to really kind of be able to investigate whether our perception of what the poem is about is actually what the poem is about. So I wrote this poem pretty recently this year, a few months ago, while I was attending a writing workshop virtually. And as when I go to any kind of writing workshop, writing conferences, I'm always inspired by other people's words. And I think one of the generative writing exercises was to sort of observe what's around you and write about what's around you. And because of reading, being, being in the setting, being surrounded by all these beautiful words, all this creativity, I was looking at a cup of hot tea I had sitting in front of me. And the steam was rising up from the cup of tea and I kind of wanted to capture it with my camera but it just wouldn't do I don't know why I tried several times so I was just like okay fine I'll, I'll just write a poem about it <laughs> so okay, right that puts a whole different light on it uh, for me capturing that, that image of steam you don't want to actually capture it physically. What you wanted to capture it as a as a photograph. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, as an imagery, and, and it was really right, difficult. So there's, there's one line in there: the growing thick, but never as menacing as it really is. Can you sort of talk about that a bit? Yeah, yeah. So basically, uh, in the beginning, I was this. This is why I started writing the poem is to capture this image using my words to capture this image, which my camera failed to do. So as I was trying to use my words to sort of draw this image, I followed the steam. So you weren't far off in terms of the setting, right? So I followed the steam and let my eyes follow the steam where it was going. And the steam was happening in front of this cluster of trees that I could spy and somewhere off in the distance. And that's sort of the middle of the poem that talks about the, the trees. And, and it was a beautiful landscape. And then in behind or on top of the treetops were these clouds that were co coming in. It was a mixture of clouds, different different formations of clouds, the wispy ones that you get to see with uh, wind when wind comes and then blow clouds all over the place so they become much more wispy. Uh, but then 
the gathering of waves. So the clouds, some of it was becoming like a wave formation. I don't know what it was. It looked more like storm clouds that, you know, are heavier, like sort of cotton candy or something and whipped cream. So they're thicker and they, they were becoming thicker, turning from white to a darker shade of gray and darker. And, and so it seems menacing, but because they're off in the distance, you don't, you could imagine them as not being as uh, menacing because you're not you're safely ensconced in, in indoors, despite the fact that many of us are sick of being indoors <laughs> at this moment. But still, there is a sense of safety. You you come to the, the your logical mind is telling you, yeah, you are safe from the storm. Um, so in in essence, there is an indirect reference to the pandemic that's going on outside and the reasons that we're all staying inside. So there, um, but the fact that, um, that I personally am able to, uh, to hide away has spared me the immediacy of the danger of both the virus and also the storm that's brewing outside. Right. Yeah. And you, the last distance giving room for fantasy to kind of protect it from that allows yourself allows your mind to wander and dream about whatever whatever you want you, even though you're physically confined you like the steam you're free to um, fantasize form any shape that you like right right exactly and and you know I have I have the luxury of the safety to also psychologically distance myself enough that I am describing clouds, I'm describing steam, I'm describing treetops in, you know, artistic, creative ways that people who are in the immediacy of this pandemic, in the med- even in the immediacy of a storm, would not have the luxury to do. Right, yeah. yeah. So is this, is this part of a collection? That's one of the questions I always ask other writers who have uh, published other collections is that I, I tend to write on a, a variety of topics and I don't really know how to put together a collection <laughs> because they're so different. <laughs> so Yeah, it's um, putting, putting collections to, I'm not sure that I've got it sorted out either actually. It's um, <laughs> Some span over a period of, of years, or and you just put them all together and play around with them a little bit, and then that's it. That's how it feels to me, anyway. Right, right. But a when slice of me- a slice of memory, really. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. Because once the poem written, that records your particular state at a particular time, I think. Does for me anyway, mm, yeah. um, and I want to move on to the next one. Right, right. Keeps on rolling out. Yeah. Right. It is sort of like uh, taking a mental picture, basically these poems. Yeah, yeah, I would certainly agree with that. Mm. And, and the picture is of your whole. Well, for me, it, it is an encapsulation of much of my life at a particular time. Mm. It's not just not a not one pointed aspect of it, but it, it always tends to expand to to way more things. Yeah. Right. I wonder though. You have mentioned previously that you had. Um, I guess you you were the editor on certain anthologies, and you put together anthologies. I wonder what's how different it is to put together an anthology of other people's writing as opposed to putting together a collection of your own writing. Do you feel that you're much more objective with other people's writing than your own? Yeah, I've, I've quite enjoyed it because it's, it's actually followed a similar process to what my job was when I was working mm. because I, I was always calling or submissions on proposals and ideas and plans. Mm. So I was, 
I was forever receiving letters and um, pages and pages of written material from people trying to con convince us to do something or not do something. Mm. Um, so that process is, I kind of quite, quite enjoy that. Mm. And the anthologies of Fast Fibers poetry, which is a, like an annual anthology of poetry from based on the uh, people that have a connection to Northland where I live. Mm. It's a very, I guess it's quite a open, egalitarian kind of view of poetry. So mm. we try to include as many people as we can, mm. give everyone the opportunity to have their voice, um, have their poems um, seen and, and, and read or, and heard. Mm. And, uh, it's really a, like a community building mm. exercise or process. Mm. Uh, and it is. It's quite fun, really, mm. um, putting it together and then having people take away copies and they take away sometimes some of them take away 10 copies of their own of their of the books and give them away to their friends and family and it's just promoting poetry really yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, and people reading it people um, buying it seeing it being exposed to it because mm -hmm. uh, it is as you said earlier even though we are all living in different situations, we are still living on the same planet, mm. and we're still human, and we still have, um, irrespective of the language we speak and, and where, we, where we live, we still have things that, that join us as humans. Mm. Yeah. And the same can be said, you know, closer to home, the people that live around around us and the communities that we live. Right. Uh, the more we, closer we get to each other, the, 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 the stronger and more resilient we are. Right. When you do release these anthologies under normal circumstances, well, even now, because New Zealand is in a much better shape than we are, do you do readings uh, where the community come together and, and the authors, poets, read from the collection? Oh, oh yes, yeah, yeah. We have. I usually have at least four readings um, around the space. Around it's around National Poetry Day, which happens at, at the end of August, and okay. um, we have readings in the, the Whangarei, the, the city where I knew it's not far from here. Yeah. And, in a, and, a, and a couple of other places as well, um, not too far away. Mm. And people come to them and read and, and listen to the poetry. That's good. That's great. Yeah. It's quite a, a busy time of year, actually. Mm. Okay. Uh, poetry is gaining a bit of momentum, I think. That's wonderful. Uh, I think kind of feels like more and more people seem to be reading it mm -hmm. uh, and exploring different ways of presenting it. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And as you said before, you know, it, it does allow, the journal allows you to explore and get to know the people living in the surrounding area. I, I imagine it's a re relatively larger area where people... I mean, to me, the, the population density of New Zealand is not very high. So even if you are within a certain distance from each other, you don't necessarily run into them day to day. Is that right? Well, and yeah, I mean, in the city that I'm in, it's about 100,000 people. Ah, okay. um, I don't see a poet every day if I go into town, but having said it, it's... It's not just the poetry, it's also the, the whole kind of creative, there's a lot of creative people around. Mm. There's a lot of artists, musicians, uh, filmmakers, dancers of all, of all forms. Mm. And it's really the, 
poetry is one manifestation of the of the creative urge, really. Mm. Uh, and so we recently had a fringe festival, uh, which was a, a first first for the Fotheray um, city, mm. and it really brought together a wide diversity of, of people uh, mm. to town, and, and it was a whole it was about ninety different performances. Oh, wow. uh, over the course of a couple of weeks, right. and um, I think everyone got a lot out of it. Mm. Uh, the, just the, the mixing of different genres—it's really what is most interesting. Mm. Uh, seeing, you know, painting exhibitions that include some poetry somewhere, or a dance show that includes poetry. Mm. Uh, comedy. I mean, it's putting it putting it all together, mm. not just silos of music, silos of film, silos of, of dance, but combining them is what I'm starting to get into now. It's, it's quite exciting. Right, right, yeah, I imagine so. It's so wonderful to hear that that's you know, at least your country is able to do something that's, you know, that seems normal. Despite it being... Well, we are very lucky. I mean, apart from a, a period where uh, there was a quite confining lockdown, mm. uh, at the moment uh, we've got through that and really the only cases of COVID that, that we encounter are cases that have come that come in from overseas. Right. So there's no no community transmission. Um, having said that, you know we can't be complacent about it because you know the viruses are as, as tricky so as the air that they exist in, yeah. and we're not out of the, no one's out of the uh, onto the easy path yet by any stretch of the imagination. No, yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, at the moment, um, it seems we are quite lucky um, being isolated in the way that we are, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, hopefully, you know, everything um, will continue for you guys the, the way it is and getting better. Right? Now we just all need to wait out the vaccine. Everyone has, yeah. Well, I hope, yeah, I hope you guys, well, I'm glad to be able to be to be speaking with you, um, hearing what is happening in the United States at the moment. It seems to be getting worse and worse. Yeah, yeah, it's a combination of uh, bad leadership and also uh, people not willing to do just uh, sacrifice a little bit of personal freedom for the greater good of everyone, including their own selves, their own health, and the health of their own uh, relatives and friends. So it's 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 kind of a strange, bizarre world <laughs> that we, we live in here in the U.S., where this sure. this idea of individualism has morphed into this uh, monstrosity. Yeah, well, that, that's, I guess that's the key thing is what am I prepared to give up? Yeah. So that everyone else in my community and my family and the country and the world that I live in are able to continue living and um, giving something up is, it's a, can be quite a difficult thing to do, whether it's your freedom or whether it's some material wealth or Yeah. I think that's, that's an important thing to consider. Yeah. 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 Because after, after all, you're still alive. Yeah. Most yeah. of us are still alive, aren't we? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's at issue here is that I think for many of the people who are refusing to give up anything in order for all of us to be in safety is that they don't believe that they will be affected personally by personally, whether that means they themselves, period, or 
their family and loved ones. I think, unfortunately, here, I don't know if it's purely a cultural thing or what, that we just, we are not thinking that far ahead. Uh, I don't know. I, I honestly have no answers because I think the, the reason might be as varied as the amount of people who are doing it for whatever reasons are doing it. I haven't uh, really come into contact with people or, or have the opportunity to speak with people who do not uh, wear masks. In fact, if I see people who do not wear masks, I kind of try to stay as far away from them as possible. It must be really difficult living in that situation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think I think just we just don't know, right? Because because it's. I think I was just talking with someone, uh, another friend that I met through Zoom meetings, that our death uh, numbers, daily death rate, has basically increased three times is the three is three times thrice actually people don't use that word anymore but three times the number it used to be only what like a month ago two months ago even more than that some maybe even quadrupled um it's it's kind of insane to think about it um and it's I mean, for me, I worry about infrastructural collapse because we are very much stretched to the brink. Um, and I think people don't, again, they do not think this far. They do not think of it as we've never at, been at a moment where the threat of infrastructural collapse is so, so close. Uh, so I don't think people bother to think about the horrors that could come when that happens when that is that point has been reached so i honestly i just I, yeah you're talking about things like collapse of the hospital system yeah the collapse of the healthcare system collapse of uh, food supplies because you know they're all run by people whether you know we have obviously a lot of machinery exactly. But uh, it is people are involved in every step of the way. And I think those people who are <laughs> like loudly speaking without a mask about their personal freedom are not thinking that far. No, no, no. no. Yeah, I've, I've always think that if you claim you have a particular right about anything, freedom to do something, go somewhere or whatever, you always have a responsibility. Um, the two go together, um, hand in glove. I think that is it's usually forgotten the responsibility that people have when they claim to have a freedom. So whether it's you have the freedom to drive a car, you also have the responsibility to make sure that you look after the car that it's not that you drive it in a way that is safe for other people as well, for right. example. Yeah, yeah I agree. I, I think that that is the problem here, is that people want their freedom without also upholding the yeah. responsibility. Uh, they, they want the... Yeah, they want the, they want the fun thing. They don't want the, the, the difficult part. <laughs> they want somebody oh, else to deal with the difficult part. So, um, right. yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, on that happy note. So, okay, look, <laughs> it's um, been great um, speaking with you, um, Imogen, and I've, I've really appreciated um, the opportunity yeah. to do this, and I've also appreciated your questioning of my poem, and it's made me think, about it mm. um, so thank, thank you very much for that yeah thank, thank you as well for your yeah. time and for willing to speak with me about your poems and, and some of uh, what you do the, the administration aspects of it as well of putting together a collection both your own collection and anthologies of other people's poems but before I let you go I would love for you to tell us how 
people might follow you online, especially for those people who are not near you at all? Well, I have a Facebook page, which I, I also have a website, mm. which I can send you a link to that. Sure. Can you also tell us here uh, while we're talking what the website, uh, the name of the website or the link uh, for the website is, oh, and also for Facebook? It's just Pete, Pete Newland at simplesite.com. Okay. My Facebook page is simply Pete, Pete Newland, um, but you know, obviously you need to get the spelling right. <laughs> yes, that's the tricky part. That is the tricky part. Yeah. Feel free. You can you can spell it for us. I can spell it. Okay. So my that's P E I E T N I E U W L A N D. Okay. Great. So P I E T. N I E U W L A N D. That's right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you again for your time. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for that, Imogen. Yeah. It's great. Wonderful. You can find us at poetsandmuses.com as well as on Instagram and Twitter under Poets and Muses. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter at poetsandmuses.com. Now, in addition to our Poets and Muses website and SoundCloud page, you can also listen to the Poets and Muses podcast on your preferred podcast platforms. I'm your host, Imogen A-Rate. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you have a safe and healthy week, and I look forward to bringing you another episode next Sunday.